Miles, what's up, man? How are you doing today? Tristan, what a great day to talk about a busy week in the nest. There's news hopping all over, the, and, and hawks and chicks and eggshells all over this seahawk nest. There, there are a lot of eggshells that we don't have to worry about stepping on. There's no eggshells to step on. We just, because we have the the bird of prey claws and talons, you, you kind of, I think, can just step around and over eggshells and there's no problem whatsoever. Just a little inside baseball here, folks. There's so much fun stuff stuff to talk about. We were doing our prep and we kind of just said, we just got to get this going because it's so there's so many fun topics. Um, listen, we're not going to bury the lead here. We just heard about Leonard Williams. I mean, hot off the presses, maybe not for you because you're living in the general time continuum, but we are in this special time warp zone that's called podcast dimension. And in our dimension, the Leonard William trade just happened, but also it happened like five years ago. And who knows when it happened? And that's the beauty of this, this forum. It, we, we live outside of the boundaries of space and time. And that's, it's a blessing to us and also a blessing to you, the audience. Miles, Leonard Williams, I think this is a really, really big deal. I, I think, and I want your thoughts on this, obviously, I, I think that the Seahawks address their biggest need going into the season in general. I, I think everyone agreed the biggest need was defensive tackle. They didn't address it the way people expected in the draft. They did address it with... Um, with Young and with um, oh, I'm blank, blanking on his name because he got injured. Um, sounds just like Mike Bennett. Uh, Mike, is it Michael Morris? I I should know this guy's name off the top of my head. He, he's defensive tackle. He's like a fifth rounder. He got hurt. That's why I don't know his name off the top of my head. Um, but they they tried to address it in the draft. I think they did a bit. Obviously, Jaron Reed coming in, but Leonard Williams in my mind, is a marquee player in this league that we need for this position. It was a place going into the season I considered a weakness. It is now, you know, what, seven games into the season, I would say, I, I wouldn't say a strength. I wouldn't say interior defensive tackle is a strength of this team, but certainly not a weakness. I, I think we're good there. I think Jaron Reed... Uh, uh, Jones, we're holding it down. I would submit to you, I think with this signing, they they just created, they just took something that was average to, to great. I think now it's an actual legit strength of this team. What were your takeaways when you thought about the Leonard Williams trade? There's certainly no doubting the, the reputation of Leonard Williams, named a top 100 player in the NFL in the last couple of years. I couldn't stop thinking, though, about it would feel very weird, I think, to be pancaked by a 300-pound man, and his name is Leonard. I kind of kept on thinking about that. It seems a little bit... Leonard Williams really works, but when you just think that, like, Leonard got me, I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Well, it's, that's a real hot take, Miles. Um, and, Nobody's and talking the about it. <laughs> no one has the guts to talk about being pancaked by Leonard Williams. Um, I don't think it would feel good. Although I'll say I would rather be pancaked by Leonard Williams than by Jason Peters because Jason looked 
really, really big in this game. Um, Anthony Bradford looks like a very large man. I think that both those guys are like, they're dancing around 340. I'm pretty sure that Leonard's dancing around 300. So it now here's the real question that no one has the guts to ask except this podcast. Who would you rather have pancakes with Leonard Williams or Anthony Bradford? Oh, I was definitely going to go Jason Peters with that one. He got, he got about 20 years of, of NFL. Um, you know, let's, let's get pancakes with Leonard, get to know him. He's an important guy around, around these parts. Well, and he's lived in the New York market for his entire career, right? The Jets and the Giants. So it is possible. And, and you know, as a podcast, we always want to be sensitive to this. He might be a bagel guy at this point in his life. Just he's been around some of the best bagels in the world. And uh, I'd enjoy an everything bagel with him um, if that's what he, you know, and obviously he could get whatever flavor he wanted. But I'm an everything bagel kind of guy um, if I'm eating with Leonard Williams. I I've gone on an emotional uh, in our time since the news of this trade came into the podcasting dimension. I've I've been on an emotional roller coaster with this. At first, I thought this. So the important thing is the Seahawks trading next year's next spring second round pick to the Giants. You're also trading away your 2025 fifth rounder. I'm not as concerned about that. You might have heard our tremendous fifth round knowledge just a minute ago, but the 2024 second rounder is, uh, that's a pretty steep price. And I understand that the giants are picking up virtually all of his salary. So the Seahawks will not be cutting very large checks out to Leonard Williams. But I was thinking, you know, John and Pete in years previously have, have been maybe a little too eager to give to to trade away draft picks for veteran players. We had the Dwayne Brown trade. We had the Jamal Adams trade. And in both of those cases, you know, Dwayne Brown and, and Jamal Adams are, are both fantastic players, but the, the draft compensation that the team gave up was really steep. And it, I think it kind of got the Seahawks to this place where they did need to hit hit reboot with the Russell Wilson trade. In the 18 months since that trade, we've, we've talked about how this is a rebuilding team that's just rebuilding so well that they're solidly in the playoff picture. But I kind of thought, man, right, right at it again. Huh? Just, just a few months of, of things going well. We're going to start trading away those draft picks again. But then I kind of thought, I, I, the, I looked at the 2024 cap sheet. It doesn't look great. It, it doesn't look, things don't, uh, and I, I got a little more on that to, to get into the details a little bit, but um, I kind of thought, I don't expect the team to be able to re-sign Leonard Williams, and in that case, you could expect to get a compensatory pick in the third or fourth round the next year, 2025, so when you start to think like, okay, they're trading away their second rounder to get, you know, half a season of Leonard Williams at this very important stage where they, they really could make a playoff run here in exchange for, you know, a year later, a round later. It didn't seem like that steep of, of a thing to me, but just looking at, and I know all sorts of, there's all sorts of manipulation that can happen with, with an NFL salary cap. I know the 2024 numbers are not written in pen. They're, they're barely written in pencil, you know, but there's going to have to be a lot of moves that get made just just to get the kind of depth that we're enjoying out of this year's roster, and I just I don't know if I 
I wouldn't expect them to be able to re-sign him. Do you want to hear the numbers or? Oh yeah. So this year, the team's highest hit on the cap is DK Metcalf at thirteen point seven million. So that's the highest. That's that's a pretty low hit. Next year, we've already got five guys who have a cap hit that's going to be above twenty million. That's being led by Geno Smith at thirty-one point two million. You also have Jamal Adams, Tyler Lockett, DK Metcalf, and Quandre Diggs. Their salaries are all just making a huge jump up. As of right now, for the free agency period that will start in March, the team only has one point two million dollars in cap space. So there's plenty of teams. Uh, with the the New Orleans Saints being the very worst offenders, there are plenty of teams that are actually already over their like cap number. So the Seahawks rank 23rd in total cap space for next spring. And then with our free agent class, it's not that we have major free agents leaving, with the exception of Bobby Wagner. But there's about six. There's about sixteen, seventeen free agents, and it's kind of a lot of these guys who just positively contribute uh, game in and game out. Phil Haynes, Jordan Brooks, Evan Brown, Daryl Taylor, Colby Parkinson, Drew Locke is in there as well. I think, you know, even though he's only he's barely played, I personally think backup quarterbacks a very important position. So, um. Yeah, I don't know how it all works. I didn't know how it was all going to work anyway the first time I looked at it a few weeks ago. And then it's like, with Leonard Williams into the mix, uh, yeah, I wouldn't expect him to come back. And as I'm talking, I'm feeling very pessimistic about this. It's obviously an improvement on the year, but um, and, and I think it'll make for a very exciting last second half of the season. But I think for right now, it just it put the team in a position where I'm not as excited as I could have been, I guess, could you just coming off the like last week, like, Oh, this is a rebuilding team. Still. You're just, there's pulling rookies out of, out of everywhere to contribute to the team. And it, it's like, it's the, the cap sheet isn't that wide open as it can be with like a really, really young. So th- everything you said makes complete sense. I, the, the number, actually the one player that scares me the most when you mention guys that, we need to sign back. We want to keep him as Jordan Brooks. And I've been you know, obviously talking about him every week. I, I think he's having an insane year. Um, that said though, I'm not worried about the cap number at all. And I'll tell you exactly why. Well, here's why hot take. Um, John Schneider is the dad in the neighborhood who is really good with his money. He, he drives an older car he has his house paid off. He, um, you know, they're not going out to dinner all the time. He is one of the least flashy GMs in the league when it comes to the way he spends the Seahawks money. He is the Dave Ramsey, right, of of general managers. It, you know, it, it, as far as this, you you mentioned the Saints. The Saints are using credit cards to pay for their mortgage right now, and it's all going to crash. Um, the Rams were in that position for their their Super Bowl run where they they were living on credit cards. And so it looked really good there for a second. Man, they're going to Hawaii again. Wait, now they're going to Europe. They can go to their a Tokyo trip. This is crazy. 
And and the the Seahawks are kind of the family that said, hey, we're going to do a national park road trip. We're, we're going to keep, you know, we're going to be careful. We're not going to live a, a beyond our means. And so I say that all to say that when I think of the Seahawks and the way that they spend money in general, um, for them to make for them to make a move like this, like when when the family that you know that's really, really good with money suddenly buys a boat, it's not as concerning because it's like, okay, you've thought this through. You have a plan where there are some families, they buy a boat and you're like, guys, I don't know. That's a bad idea. I don't know if you should be buying a boat. Um, I think the Seahawks are a good example of the sort of team that that can be trusted with complex financial decisions, I guess is what I'm saying. And and they've done that for the history of the ball club. They've, they've always lived within their means. Um, so I guess my point is this. All of your points are 100% correct. I'm just not worried about it because I trust dad because I, I just I trust that he's got a plan and he's not he's proven over the last decade not to be the guy that's always pulling out the credit card. And so if he's Right now, we're going for it. I, I think they see something in Leonard Williams that's special. I honestly, I, I get what you're saying, and it, it kind of makes it a win-win if we if we can sign Leonard Williams next year for you know three or four years, something like that, nothing crazy, then that's great because we keep a really strong defensive tackle. To your point, though, he is going to get paid this offseason no matter what. So if he gets paid and we get a compensatory pick down the line, it, it really kind of helps to – to kind of nullify long-term what this trade does. So net net, I'm, I could not be more excited about it as a fan. I'm just going to focus on the here and the now and just enjoy and just say, yeah, Hey, we got Leonard Williams. He's what we needed right now. Hopefully Mike Morris. Yes. I did look him up to make sure that I said his name correctly. Um, hopefully Mike Morris um, out of Michigan will be able to fill that, you know, that role into the future. And again, as we talk about these rookies with their snap counts every single week, um, it, it, that does pretend well to long-term stability and having, having a, a roster that can you know continue to kind of beat the whole salary cap thing. But you bring up a good point. That's a lot of dudes that are, you know, <laughs> are not necessarily Seahawks next year. And some guys that would really suck, Coley Parkinson, Jordan Brooks. I mean, those are some guys you want to stick, you know, you want to keep around. Um, and, and frankly, I mean, you know, Jamal Adams, he's, he's playing his way again. So, um, you, these are all players we want to keep, but I'm not going to worry about it today. I'm, I'm just going to let dad take care of that. Cause I, I think he's good with his money. He is good with the money. I feel like the, the, the draft picks traded away is kind of the one area of like, not 100% responsibility. They, they've been okay with sending away some a lot of, of higher draft picks uh, in the in the last seven or eight years. And, and uh, uh, that being said, though, you, it this was the biggest move across the entire league at the trade deadline. Uh, it was not a move that was talked about beforehand, really. So it does signal that Pete and John really do see something phenomenal about this year's team that it, that it was worth pushing in. At this moment. Well, and the good news is that um, the 49ers are doing absolutely nothing. You know, while we're getting Leonard Williams, the 49ers have done not a thing. Oh, wait. Breaking news. 
This is the worst dramatic music you could ever have for breaking news. Breaking news. The 49ers just got Chase Young. That that's crazy. I mean, the arms race in the NF uh, blah 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 in the NFC West continues. That that's crazy. Chase Young. You think to yourself, like, oh man, we got the big free or the big trade, you know, deadline trade. Here we go. 49ers are on their way out. And then suddenly Chase Young. Like, I mean, a Miles Garrett level just athletic freak is coming into you know our division that's that's super fun thanks thanks Niners well funny enough it was the Chase Young trade that made me feel better about the draft compensation Seattle was giving up because San Francisco is trading away a compensatory third round pick they've already earned for Chase Young and then it's possible if they let him walk they could resign him as well but if they let him walk they would just get a compensatory third or fourth you know the next year and I was like Oh man, it's almost a move for free. And then I was like, you know what? The 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 Hawks move with the second rounder is is could be somewhat close to that. Yeah. Um, okay, moving on from Leonard Williams, um, who I'm I think we're both super excited about. And I mean, honestly, it's gonna be so fun seeing him in here. And frankly, how it affects the snap counts with uh with Young, I think will be interesting as well. Um before, I mean, man, we haven't even gotten into the game yet. This is insane. Before that, really quickly, I mean, I guess this is the game. What did you think of the throwbacks? What What did you think about just those 1990s vibes um, the Seahawks were giving us? You know, in the first quarter, which went different than the three quarters to follow, so I did not think this by by quarter three, but in the first quarter, it looked so good. And the Browns out there, it's just a bad uniform. It's got this historical weight to it, but it's a bad uniform. I thought it was a legitimate competitive advantage. That's how good I thought the uniforms are because I I thought there's no way you would just feel good going out there in those uniforms that look that good. The color, everything about it, I I really thought they were good enough that it it was giving them a real competitive advantage of like, you know, look good, feel good, feel good, play good, play good, they pay good. Like, I thought it was, I, I thought the uniforms were that good. And I'm a little frustrated that, I, I, I'm frustrated that it's not the full time. I think it, I know it wouldn't be that special if it was the full time uniform, but let's go. I mean, hopefully this gets the ball rolling. This should be, this should be the regular deal. I'd love to see him two to three times a year. I think in a perfect world, I get to see those at least three times a year, and I would be very happy with that. Um, I Going into it, I was very excited for these uniforms, but I was kind of downplaying it in my mind. I kind of thought, oh, yeah, you know, it'll be great. They're good uniforms. I'm excited to see it. It was so much better than I thought, and I was excited going into it. I wasn't a hater at all. I went, I walked away in the same boat you're in of like, all I want is to see them in those uniforms because they look so good. Um, someone who had a really good article on it, um, Dave Bowling, who is uh, formerly a writer for the uh, Tacoma News Tribune, um, he summed up a historical Seahawks perspective perfectly, where he basically, his whole article was talking about how this team looked like a team from the 90s, but played much, much better. And basically talked about how like the entire time that any of us watched this team in the 90s, 
they sucked. I mean, they really, it was a really bad team and, and not fun to watch at all. And there was a lot of two and 14 type teams. And so there's part of me that watches those old uniforms and it's kind of, you know, the ghosts of the past, you know, Hollywood, uh, blah, 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 um, uh, Halloween special, uh, uh, mentioned there ghosts of the past. But as I was watching it, I kept thinking that, that like all of my memories associated with this uniform are negative or mostly negative. And so it's weird watching a team be good and in control while wearing these uniforms because I've never seen that before. I've only seen mediocrity in the, in these uniforms. And I think the only reason you could wear these uniforms is because since then, we've won a Super Bowl. The Legion of Boom has shown us like how we can be brash in the city and how like the Seahawks can be the team that's like the best team and like tells everyone else to shut up and, you know, don't try me with a sorry receiver like Crabtree. That's the result you're going to get. Like, uh, though, I feel as though it, this is a weird, maybe meta thing to say, but I, I feel as though watching this team in these uniforms made me appreciate the fact that the Pete Carroll era and specifically all of those Legion of Boom dudes like that era of Seahawks football makes it possible to even enjoy watching the Seahawks in these old uniforms, because the only way that you could ever appreciate these old uniforms is that like I've had such a crazy Listerine mouthwash that has cleansed my palate from all of the bad years of mediocrity because the Legion of Boom, because Pete Carroll, because those teams, Russell Wilson, Marshawn Lynch, completely redefined what it was to be a Seahawk. Now I can look back and be like, oh, yeah, these are kind of cool uniforms. But it, it, I don't know if that makes sense. But like it, there are so many kind of vibing, uh, uh, competing emotions in my head. I love the way they look. And I'm so grateful that Pete Carroll and, and his regime is, have made the Seahawks successful enough that I can look back at a time that wasn't the best of times and still be fond of it. I, I don't know. Tell me if that makes sense to you. Like, that's just kind of where I'm at in the moment with them. It does, the team, I, what, as you were talking, what I was thinking about was the Raiders of the Raiders of many different cities. Because every time I see them, I think... That is such a good uniform, but the weight of it, and I think they still have the same color as they did in the 70s because they were so good in the 70s. The weight of that uniform has really gone away for it. Ha that hasn't carried weight for like 20 years, you know? So then it's really astonishing to see like a highlight package of the Raiders or something and be like, wow, that looks good still. So I, I think it's, yeah, you're right. The, the, the play can make the uniform feel different. For sure. Um, but I mean, all that to say, uh, the, the, it looked, I wish I could have been there. It looked like the team did an insane job with their day of um, you know, the marketing department, uh, the, the the effects around the stadium. It, it looked like they really made it a kind of a 90s vibe, um, which was super, super fun. Um, one thing I noticed, I mean, you know, they have different music when they cut from uh, uh you know, commercial breaks, right? Was for the broadcast. And 
it was all like 90s music. And then it occurred to me, it's always all always 90s music because when you watch a Seahawks game and they cut, it's always like Nirvana or Alice in Chains or like the, from a national perspective, Seattle is still in the 90s from their music. And like that's all anyone associates is like Seattle grunge. So it occurred to me, I was like, oh yeah, these, these 90s songs they keep cutting to, that's really, you know, prescient because of the throwbacks. But also every single Sunday, they always cut away with like Nirvana or something like that. You know, it's just it's kind of funny, the, the national perspective. Um, man, 24 minutes in. Now let's actually talk some football. Holy moly. I mean, holy catfish. We got through Leonard Williams. We got through the beautiful uniforms, as my daughters call them, the beautiful outfits that they were wearing. Now let's let's get into this game um, Miles, what was your number one kind of takeaway of the game? What, what did you think about it? Uh, 24 minutes. We wanted to talk one minute for each of those sweet, sweet points. The Seahawks scored 24 to 20 over the Cleveland Browns. Uh, this was really two at the, the Seahawks scored 17 points in the first quarter. And then they didn't score for the next about 40 Five minutes of, of game time until the very end. It was really two different games. Sitting there in the first quarter, they were up, I think, 17 to three. And I thought, we got them. There's no way a team led by PJ Walker is going to come back from a 14 point deficit. He's going to be in all these must pass situations. We got them already. They're just going to blow this thing open. So it was really frustrating. It was a win over another playoff team. It moves the Seahawks into first place in the division. And yet it is kind of it is tempting to nitpick a little bit because it you get the sense that the team still hasn't played its complete game yet. For some reason, each unit gets knocked off course a little bit over the course of every game, and they haven't really played their complete game. They're still good enough to win when they, even without scoring for 45 minutes, just kind of in this muck for most of it. But fortunately, you know, keeping the game close, they they kept the scoreboard close. But yeah, I think think there's a sense of like, man, if only they could really piece everything together for an entire 60 minutes, then, then, then it would be, you know, it would... The potential is is outrageous, but for some reason they just haven't been able to do it, and it seems like they get down on themselves for a while. It, it felt like a game of emotions, kind of more than than strategy points for me. Yeah, you know, it it seems to me, and I'm assuming most teams are like this in the NFL. Um, in fact, I bet this is true that like most teams in the NFL have two or three games a year, maybe just two games a year. Where, where they play perfectly, where like they hit it on all cylinders. The defense does what it's capable of doing. The offense does what it's capable of doing. Special teams, it all comes together and it's, you know, a blowout. It's a 42 to 18 or, you know, whatever it is, 42 to 13. Um, don't know why the number 42 is stuck in my brain, but apparently it is. Um, and the Seahawks, you're right. They have not had that yet. They've had dominant defense. They've had dominant offense. We haven't put them together quite yet. Um, it occurred to me early on in that game when it was 14 to nothing. Um, we, we had a possession or I guess maybe it was 14 to three at that point. I I can't remember, I guess 14 to seven. Um, it was early in the game though, where 
we had a couple of drops and and just a a couple of miscues. And as I was watching it for a second time, I just kept thinking like, man, if DK makes that catch or if Tyler makes that catch like right there, or if, if that just breaks slightly differently, what happens in this game? You know, what happens if they end up going up 21, you know, to nothing or something like that early on? It, it certainly felt like it could have been a runaway freight train of a game and it wasn't. I don't know if you'll agree with me or not. Tell, tell me, keep me honest here. I really think that it's the very minor adjustments that needed to be made on offense. You know, once a, a couple of little things didn't go right um, there in the second quarter that I think if they do go right, it turns into a blowout and it's kind of a laugher of a game. Obviously, this is the NFL. This is why it's entertaining because the other team's also very good and it's hard to do that. Um, And the Browns competed and and I have a few points on that because I was actually really impressed with them um, and a few of their players specifically. It felt like it could have been a, a runaway freight train. It wasn't, but I walked away fairly, fairly encouraged by the fact that it seems to me there's a few small adjustments that need to be made that I, I, it seems to me there was an improvement from last week to this week. I guess that's maybe ultimately what I'm saying. I, I think I'm, I'm seeing little improvements every week that are showing me we're going to have that game in the next few weeks, maybe where it really does all come together. But I mean, keep me honest, tell me if you agree with that or not. No, I do agree. And one of the adjustments that that I appreciated was scoring that touchdown on the the rushing handoff to Jake Bobo. We talked last week about how, hey, the red zone, it's getting kind of crazy down there. We just let I and I proposed I proposed using Bobo as the fullback, I think, or at least that's what I was thinking about. So it actually handed the ball off, I thought was some great hey, they kind of saw that it was a problem and they needed to show Cleveland a new look that they hadn't seen on tape before. And that worked really well. Um, yeah, it does seem there's there's something about the slumps. There's they're kind of offensive slumps. There's been even going back to the second half of the Rams game, game one of the year. They just kind of get into this 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 game flow where they're they're three and outing a lot, and kind of forcing stuff. And you, you, it feels like you would like to see. Hey, can we just get five yards on first and ten? You know, and, and then work from there. And, and they kind of start to lose that. I talked last week about how uh, against the Lions and the Panthers, their best offensive performances, a ton of targets to tight ends. Not so last week against Arizona, and not so again uh, in this one against the Browns. There were thirty-seven pass attempts, and only three of them were targets to tight ends. All three of them went to Fant. One of them was the crazy, this might be one of the crazy Browns plays that, yeah, uh, where, where the the de- Maurice Hurst, the defensive lineman, goes back and, and tips the pass in pass coverage, which is wild. But what, one of the other fan targets was the very crucial play where he got the, the incredible run downfield to, to set up that touchdown. It, it was a vital play. So uh, I know I've talked about the tight ends before, but I, I do kind of think about them as like, hey, is is that a, a way to go when when you've had a few three and outs and you really just need to start piecing a drive together? Um, it seems like they, yeah, just get in a slump somehow. Um, and I agree with you. I, I do just have to comment that that Noah Fant catch down the sidelines. I mean, what a game changing 
the energy, the feeling of that moment. I mean, every game has a couple of moments like that. And Noah Fant grabbing it down the sidelines. It looked as though it's like, oh, yeah, go out of bounds right here. That's perfect, man. And instead he cuts back in. You're like, oh, man, going out of bounds would have been kind of good. And then he gets another 15 yards. What takes it down to the 10? Um, What a cool. I mean, it, it I enjoy watching Noah play because. I keep going back to he does have that first round pedigree and seeing him unleash on people and and, and just what he can do in the passing game is um, is so exciting. But yeah, it's it's interesting um, being able to iron out some of those some of those plays that are just kind of nine at us you know would it'd be nice and i i mean i agree it does seem like they're still using that three tight end set quite a bit um they're just not necessarily targeting them so i do wonder if a lot of the game script is hey we sh- we've showed them these looks now we're going to do other stuff off of the same looks and stuff like that but um so for me something that i i don't think we've done this in this podcast but i i, I couldn't help it as i was re-watching the game last night I was taken aback by two plays and and you named one of them, the Hurst interception, two plays by the Browns that I thought were unbelievable. I mean, like just take a, take a moment and appreciate human athleticism and like what people can do at the highest level. So I put myself in David and Joko's shoes. So, you know, he's, he's going after um, Tariq Woolen, right? So Reek gets the interception and is laying on his, on his back, right? Holding the football. David Njoku comes running at him full speed, like all in the moment of the interception happening. He catches it. He's laying there. Imagine David Njoku, who is, I'm, I'm going to guess his numbers right now, 6'4", 6'5", 230, 240 pounds. I mean, that's actually probably small. He's probably heavier than that. He is a massive tight end. David runs full speed at Reek, jumps down, like like kind of supermans at him, and somehow is able to, to use his hand as a scoop and scoops the ball out of his hand, lands, has the ball and it almost looks like he takes the interception away for, away from Reek. I just stood there. I I watched it like three times last night. It's one of the most impressive physical feats I've ever seen in my life. I mean, we I think we get a little spoiled watching the NFL and just watching people do insane things over and over again and it starts to get commonplace. Every now and again you just have to stop and say these guys are doing things humans are not supposed to be able to do. I, if you, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think through this. If you put a dummy on the ground with a football on its chest and said, Tristan, run full speed at the dummy, dive at the dummy, but while you're diving, don't just touch it. Use your hand as a scoop and scoop the ball out of the dummy and then land with the football and take it away from him. Like, I don't think I could do that. It's, it's insane to think that he's doing it with instinct in the moment against another elite athlete. It's so anyway, that's the first one. The second one is the one you mentioned Hurst. The dude is 6'2", 290 pounds. He is dropping back into coverage in that kind of middle linebacker type zone 
tips the ball, and then a dude that's 290 pounds looks up in the air, tracks the ball, runs about seven yards behind him with other elite athletes like bees swarming around trying to get to the same football and just catches it and then gets back up and runs a little bit. Like, hats off to the Browns, man. Like, that's, I just, I want to give credit to where credit's due. It's a weird thing to say on a Seahawks podcast. I hope it's appreciated. Just these two dudes, you know, maybe we'll have a segment called Hats Off, and it's it, and, and this is the birth of it. Hats <laughs> off to these two dudes, because I, I think it was unbelievable. Um, and then just because I feel like a weirdo just talking about the Browns, um, let me segue it back to the Seahawks. We had some pretty amazing plays, and, and what I'll always mention is the explosive plays. Um, so the Seahawks had six explosive plays. Um, and it even more, well, I guess a couple caveats, uh, let me look at my notes for my caveats here. GSN had a 19 yarder and Lockett had a 17 yarder. So technically those aren't explosive plays. The the line for explosive is 20 yards. So technically those don't count as quote unquote explosives. Um, and then Bobo had a 15 yarder. So they're, they're just underneath it, but if you look at it, that's six, then plus the Bobo, seven explosive plays by the Seahawks offense, um, which is winning football. That has always been Pete Carroll's motto, run the football, protect the ball, and then every now and again, just break their back and flip the field. Um, no better example of that, obviously, than the um, the DK Metcalf pass down the sidelines for, for 43 yards. So, you know, certainly some really good examples of explosive plays on our side, too. So. <laughs> I'll give the Seahawks credit as well. Uh, both running backs had awesome explosives as well. Um, but uh, but man, yeah, hats off to the Browns. Th- those guys were doing work. Oh man, I really like hats off. And you know what? Hats off to the Browns coaching staff for drawing. <laughs> uh, how good must that have felt when you draw up this play <laughs> where your guy, your interior D lineman drops into coverage and then comes down with the interception. I mean, you know, a, a, a triumph that it was hard to get mad at that interception. You know what he, yeah. you know, are you, what are you supposed to look for? You're not supposed to look for that, you know, uh, as a quarterback. Uh, I agree with that. Like it's easy and I can be critical of Gino on the interception, you know, the, the pass to Metcalf on the left sideline. Um, yeah, I'm a little worried about that interception. Like, come on, man, we like, let's not put the ball in harm's way. But yeah, when we talk about a dude tipping his own ball and getting that interception, that's yeah, that that's an N.A. I think on the grade sheet. Like, it's just it doesn't count. Um, What got talked what got talked about a lot was the Browns getting really big gains through their screen plays in this one. And so they had a lot, they had a fair share of explosive plays as well. I disagreed a little bit. It felt to me like a lot of their big plays, like the Hawks got a lot of pressure coming in and then Walker would be like, Oh, and like dump it off to somebody. But because the Hawks got so much pressure, then suddenly the Browns had like a, an eight on seven advantage going forward. And they were able to get a lot of yards that way. I looked at it. So PJ Walker threw 248 yards total in this game, which uh, credit to him. So 156 of those 248 yards came after the catch or 
breaking that down, it was 10.4 yards after the catch on Whoa. each of their 15 catches. So that's, I was kind of looking at it and being like, I don't feel like this is the type of football you see in the playoffs where it's kind of like, oh, pressure's on me. Ah! And then it ends up being like a 20-yard run down the field. So 10.4 yards after the catch per reception. Brock Purdy this year with the Niners, who are very famous for their yard, you know, creating yards after the catch for their wide receivers. He's at 6.4 uh, per, so- per reception this year. So it was really – and then so if you take that out of Walker's game – it really looked a lot like Josh Dobbs' performance last week. So over the air, Dobbs only had 86 air yards against Seattle last week, which is about as good as you're going to get in the NFL. Walker this week had 92 yards through the air. So it it felt to me, I felt like the Seahawks defense kind of got unlucky on some of those big ones where they were at a numbers disadvantage down the field because they were, they were creating some good pressure in the pocket. I mean, yeah, I I agree with that. It is. I will say though, to give the Browns credit, they are really good at the screen plays and that is kind of the screen game. Like you, you draw the defense in like, Hey, here's the quarterback. You want to sack him? And then, you, you know, you just, you dump it off. It's ironic that the Seahawks are really bad at screens and that, you know, we just got absolutely, you know, screened on. I don't know. They're, I was hoping I was hoping my brain would come up with something funny there. But, um, you know, we really we really got the we got it screened to us. Um, we got hit over the head by a screen. Um, now we ran I'll, into I'll, the screen door. We were, oh man, that's much better. That's much better. Um, and we did. Well, we we wish we ran into the screen door. The screen door ran right by us over and over again. Um, it, to me, something that stood out to this game or in this game was, and and I, I again, I think this is a a place of encouragement that we won a game in which the Browns did exactly what they wanted to do going into the game. Right. So you bring it up the screen. They successfully ran what they're best at. And they did it very well. The running game. I I have Kareem Hunt on my fantasy team and I didn't start him because I refuse to do that. I'm a Seahawks fan first. Um, but watching every single snap of this game and watching how dedicated they are to the running game and, and how many, it was always four or five yards at a time. I mean, we rarely got them in the backfield. We rarely got them for only a one yard gain. Um, the consistency in the running game the consistency in the screen game and the domination because of those two things in time of possession, I would argue going into the game, they said, we want to possess the ball and we want to run all over the Seahawks. Mission accomplished. I mean, they ran for 154. They possessed the hell out of the ball. They they did a great job with all of those things. And yet we still won. I think is an interesting kind of statement about this team. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, it felt. Yeah, their interior offensive line really created a lot of positive. Yeah, it was like every play was a huge positive for them running, which maybe that was part of what uh, motivated Pete and John to go after Leonard Williams. The fact that hey, they saw their their an otherwise great team, and and yeah, this this potential weak point there. Yeah, and I'm excited to see him plug into that. Um, and you would hope and think that an in, uh, interior defensive tackle 
that that should be I'm not going to say plug and play, but I think that he'll be able to make an impact, you know, fairly, um, fairly quickly. Uh, The other thing that I I kind of took away from this game, and this is a takeaway we had last week. The beginning of the game, we see really good game scripting from the offense, right? So we see two drives, two red zones, two scores, bam, bam. By the way, that Tyler Lockett, you already mentioned the Jake Bobo, which was a beautiful touchdown. That Tyler Lockett catch was just so vintage, perfect Tyler Lockett. And I mean, just one of those beautiful catches. And I did appreciate Br- Brittany. My wife was watching the game with me and she's like, it, it was perfect. Did you see he gave the football to like the little boy that was like in the stands? Oh, yeah. It just looked, it was like one of those perfect moments. It's like touchdown. Oh, here you go. Like just instantly, let me make your day. Here's a touch. Here's a, here's a football. Um, so that was, that was actually pretty cute to see. Um, but we saw, I feel like we saw the same thing happen twice now where the scripting worked really, really well. And then we had a hard time adapting back to what the defense did in their adaptations. And so I'm, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I think that Shane's a good offensive coordinator. I think we have all the pieces in place. Um, and it could just be that if you were to break down all of these, uh, all of these no-goes, all of these moments that didn't work in the game in the, in the second quarter and the third quarter, Maybe it's as simple as, oh man, yeah, Tristan, we just, we got a penalty here. We had a drop there. We, you know, it it could be that simple, I guess, but it seems like something's missing in the middle of the game. Appreciate that we're finishing the way we're supposed to. Um, But yeah, it does, it does seem as though we're having a hard time doing, you know, the counter move after a defense kind of realizes what we're trying to be up to, you know, it's like, okay, yep. Fool us once, fool us twice, and then the defense can adapt and we have a hard time adapting back. Which made it all the more, well, what you're, I completely agree with you because I'm curious if you agree with me on this. Once the Seahawks intercepted that ball in the fourth quarter and had a 40, 45 yard field to go on the final possession, it felt kind of inevitable that they were going to score. And they ran that two-minute drill incredibly well. So it's kind of like, and it at, at that point, it had been about two hours plus around of time since they had run, ran a successful offensive possession. And then, but there was kind of an inevitable feeling to it, I thought, and uh, which made it all the more confusing. Like, well, why was it so uh, tough for so long and, and muddling through for so long? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really did feel as though we were in control. Although I think it's telling, if I'm remembering this right, the first two plays on that final drive, pass to Lockett, pass to Metcalf. Um, it, that kind of felt interesting. Like uh, Gino saying, all right, I'm going to go to my guys. I'm going to go to the guys that I know will, will not let me down. You know, the the one, the inner or the near interception, I should say, um, when JSN, you know, didn't finish his route. I, I, I thought of that during that final drive. That's like, okay, uh, Tyler Lockett's going to be exactly where I expect him to be. DK Metcalf will be exactly where I expect him to be on this route. Um, yeah, I think the Noah Fant as well, like he's going to be exactly where I need him to be. And then of course you end it with the JSN touchdown, which was, another glimpse we're we're getting these glimpses of oh man this is why we drafted this dude and that was a pretty route man like that that was a pretty play 
Um, did you think that Metcalf held um, on that final play? Uh, I do want to give credit to Metcalf. I was picking apart his game a few weeks ago, and yeah, it was it was tre- it was a tremendous effort blocking. It was definitely a hold, but I think he read the situation correctly. Of like, this is not a hold. They're going to call on the final minute. You know, earlier in the I think earlier in the game they probably would have, but I think he kind of I think he read the line perfectly about what he could do. Yeah, I mean, he disengaged at the very last moment. There's no doubt about that. He. He let go of that dude. I mean, he was holding, like, certainly. I don't know if it counts technically as a hold in the NFL, but he was holding the gentleman. And then it seemed as though as soon as um, as soon as soon JSN was about to pass him, he let go so that there wasn't any of that, you know, jersey tug, which is, uh, you know, always kind of an important piece to this. Um I know I mention him basically every week and no, I'm not going to mention spoon Jordan Brooks, man is playing so fast. I mean, to me, I don't know. Is that your takeaway? Like when you watch the game that Jordan Brooks just looks incredibly fast. Cause as I watch it, the, uh, the sack force fumble he had, but also just in general, Jordan Brooks is playing at a speed I've never seen him play before. Are are you getting that same kind of vibe that's just there's a speed level that he's bringing to the game that's elite? Yeah, and say with um I did see that Pro Football Focus has Bobby Wagner as the number 1 graded linebacker in the league and Jordan Brooks is also in the top 25. Uh so to, towards the towards the bottom of the top 25 but still to have two guys in the top 25 is is pretty phenomenal, and uh, yeah, I didn't realize how, oh, how the Rams really made a crucial error letting Bobby go. I mean, and then with and then he sticks back in their same division as well, and and really leads the linebacking group with Brooks. Yeah, they're both playing phenomenal. Credit cards, man. I mean, eventually you got to pay the interest, and I honestly, I mean, I think that's where the Rams are at. They they could afford Bobby for one year, and now they're they are paying interest on things they bought a long time ago. <laughs> This uh, podcast is not financial advice. Please see a um, licensed, certified financial advisor. Yes. This, this, <laughs> this, this very long pause, though, is brought to you by Merrill Lynch. Do you have money? Would you like to have more? Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch, try it out. You might like it. Hey, you like money, dum-dum? We do too. Give us your money. We'll make more for you. Merrill Lynch. Um, if if any lawyers for Merrill Lynch are listening right now, we just want to say we're sorry. And um, if you send us a cease and desist, I don't know how you will send it to us because I have no idea how you'd contact us. But if you were to send us a cease and desist, 100% we will cease and desist. Absolutely. Yeah. Same with we did get it. We did get some legal correspondence from Summer Snap Peas, um, just the the vegetable. Uh, but nonetheless, we're back with uh with more Snap Counts this week. Yeah, Snap Counts has no sponsor because the strongly worded letter from the Snap Pea community. Um, yeah, I'm we're sorry. We're sorry. We we thought that you would want your brand associated with this podcast, but 
obviously we were mistaken. It was um, spelled out with pea shells. Yeah. On a on a field. Yeah. And it was it was pretty cute. I mean, honestly. They they can't do anything that isn't cute. Um snap counts. Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready for my snap counts? Hold on. I need to move my microphone this direction so I can look at my list without losing. This is what we call great radio. Hopefully and audible. Can, yeah, hopefully you can hear that. Okay. Snap counts brought to you by Miles Ray. Uh, Zach Charbonnet, 59%. JSN, 66%. Uh, Bradford, 97%. More Bobo, 31%. Mafe, 74%. Spoon, 97%. My guy, Cam Young, who I still hope gets plenty of playing time next week. We will see. 21%. Derek Hall, 38%. And then, so first of all, let me just say that's seven rookies. So just like last week, seven rookies making a massive impact on this team, which is incredible. Um, Two honorable mentions on this because I thought it was appropriate. Frank Clark, 28%. And Trey Brown, uh, uh, 55%. The reason I mentioned both those guys, I think they're both really key. And I was happy to see that Frank Clark just coming onto the team, he had less uh, uh, less snaps than Derek Hall, which I was kind of happy about. Obviously, I think we knew that Ter- Taylor and Mafe were going to lead the team in snap counts at defensive end. Um, but the idea that Frank Clark, in my mind, in a perfect world, is kind of the number three, number four guy on the defensive end rotation. And at least in this game, he was the number four guy. Now, he he just got to the team. So I'm, I'm sure his snap counts will, will rise. But I see Frank as, as a real key to the success of this team. And, you know, Trey Brown, man. I mean, listen, we could spend an entire podcast, and we kind of have, talking about Witherspoon and talking about um, just how dominant he has been. Reek Woolen it has been great, too. By the way, awesome seeing him get that interception. I was really happy for him. and. <laughs> He could have had another. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Um, Trey Brown, I'm not going to say quietly because he hasn't been quiet at all about it. Trey Brown having an unbelievable year. I mean, the depth at at cornerback on this team is kind of ridiculous. And Trey Brown, when he's out in coverage, I feel very comfortable with him um, out there. So again, the the takeaways are we're getting tons of um, consistent quality snap counts, quality and quantity from a rookie class and from some key contributors. And, um, and obviously, you know, Cam Young and, and Anthony Bradford, the big boys continue to be kind of my favorites. Um, and I mean, Bradford specifically, he looks really good out there. And I mean, again, we're talking about a dude that's, I mean, I'm going to guess 360. I mean, he is a very, very large man and it looks like he's having fun pushing dudes around. So pretty fun. The one that stood out to me was Charbonnet uh, at 59% or 34 total snaps. He got a lot more playing time than Kenneth Walker, who was at 24 snaps in this game. And, man, the NFL's a tough place. It's only Kenneth Walker's second year, but um, it did feel good. It, it seemed to me like this was the first game where Charbonnet was even close to Walker's snap count. And... Yeah, I appreciated them integrating Charbonnet more. I think it, I think they're at a great position where those guys should be getting roughly equal playing time, whereas in the in the past it's mostly been Walker. More Charbonnet, um, for sure, is is going to be the continual calling. We want more Bobo. We want more Charbonnet. 
Um, I'll have uh, some Charbonnet with my steak. I'll have Charbonnet um, almost with anything. I'm, I'm, I, he, and he also seems like a really nice guy. So um, yeah, no, it, he's been fun. I think what's exciting, and you brought this up earlier and, and last week as well, the fact that this is a developmental team, the fact the fact that we are on the really kind of fun moment of a of a rebuild means that we get to see you you just brought up K9's only on a second year. Charbonnet, this is his seventh game in the NFL. Actually, he was hurt, right? So maybe his sixth or fifth game. These guys are going to keep getting better and better throughout the year. And we just saw Charbonnet take a big jump. I mean, this was a really big, important game for him. He he's never looked better. And you think about what does that mean six games from now, right? What does that mean seven games from now when Charbonnet has doubled his NFL experience? I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think about the potential and the the upside opportunity um, as young players play more and more and more, which, you know, we're we're at the halfway point basically now. So in the next three or four games is when we should really start reaping the benefits of the philosophy of playing young guys and, and you know, getting them their reps so that they can be really great towards the end of the year. Even the many second year players, you know, this is a huge chunk of their of their career. And you would expect, you know, it's very rare for a rookie to contribute to winning in the NFL at all. Um, we have quite a few. Um, so, yeah. So, so and, and speaking of rookies, and I'll, I'll bring Bradford up again. He looked really big. He looked really good. And a juxtaposition because Anthony Bradford playing his first year in the NFL was playing next to somebody, Miles. And it wasn't his first year in the NFL. Uh, Jason Peters comes in. Uh, after, I was really, I was starting to get curious about what was happening. They did just kind of have him chill out for about a month, uh, which is, which is funny because you know Frank Clark comes in just a few days beforehand, gets into the game. We would expect that Leonard will do the same thing. Uh, Jason Peters, though, he has earned the privilege of taking his time to get out on the field. He played 26 snaps, um, and there was, I saw on Reddit. I'm going to give a. Hats off to somebody named the Throwback King. Uh, pointed out that with Peters getting on the field in this game, he's the set. That was the second oldest offensive line appearance in the Super Bowl era of any player. He is was forty one years old and two hundred eighty days. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the oldest guy in the Super Bowl era who played as an offensive lineman. It was really, so. It was this man named Ray Brown. He was an eighth-round pick in 1986. He hangs around as a backup. He doesn't become a regular starter till 1992 when he's 30. So he goes his whole 20s, gets a few spot starts, only starts when he's 30 years old in 1992, and he keeps on going until he was 43 years old in 2005. So Jason Peters does still need to be playing. I'm not sure of the days, but... He needs to be playing at least until the second half of 2024 to beat Ray Brown. And uh, Ray Brown, he was he was an offensive line coach for a while. He was actually the Cardinals' offensive line coach in 2018. Um, shout out to Ray Brown. What an underappreciated career. I mean, to go from eighth-round pick to suddenly setting longevity records so many years later. That's And that's the funny part about offensive line. Who, you know, 
sure very few people were picking up on Ray Brown. So to me, I just, I, I know you have more to say on this. I, I just want to say really quickly, what a cool thing that he's even out there. I mean, you talk about someone playing that long. I, I'm sure somewhere we could look up Jason Peters' career earnings. Maybe you have, I don't know. But I mean, this dude is not, obviously, not playing for the money. And if you think about the beating and the work that these guys go through to be able to play, there's something really inspiring that he's just out there playing because he wants to play. He he does not need to play football. He's he's good. He is set. He's been an all pro in this league for a long, long time. The fact that he's out there is such a cool, inspiring thing and, and still playing really well. Like he did just fine. And, you know, I was thinking about it like moments where he's going up against Miles Garrett. It's kind of crazy to think about like just the background and the the experience that a guy like Jason Peters, who obviously has lost steps and obviously is not as strong as he used to be. And, and many, many things that, you know, mean that he's not 35 anymore, or not 30 anymore. And yet there's nothing that Miles Garrett can show Jason Peters that he's never seen before. Like there's no new moves like it. Maybe I'll have a hard time getting there. But it's not going to shock me. You know, I mean, it's just it's wild to think about that many reps. So I'm sorry. I just shout out to, to Peters because it's so cool that he it's so cool to see a professional loving what they do. There's no other reason why he's there. No, you're, you're totally right. And with Peters, especially, he was so established in Buffalo and then in Philadelphia for so long. It would be really it would take a very certain type of personality to be willing to do all the moving he's done. In the last few years, hasn't he gone Bears, Cowboys, and now see? I mean, he's he's kind of been one year with each team. He's he's moving his whole life around, which he didn't have to do in his twenties. You know, suddenly he's in his late thirties, early forties, and he's he's willing to yeah uh, pick up and move everything. Uh, this is this is really stupid. What I'm gonna what I'm gonna say next, but uh, you might have noticed that I said this this is the second oldest. Jason Peters and Ray Brown, the oldest in the Super Bowl era. Um, there's a ridiculous uh, footnote. There was an older guy before then. You ready? <laughs> so, no, I'm not. If, Hold on. Fo- let me... fo- football let... used to be different back in the day. So here's the guy with, with the record for the oldest offensive line play. His name is John Nesser. He played in his career. He played a total of two games. They both came when he was 45 years old. Uh, he played for the ninth. This is all true. But this, I know this sounds like I'm making this up. This is, especially what's about. This is all true. He played in 1921 for the Columbus Panhandles. Um, the Columbus Panhandles had a down year that year. They were 1-8. The offense was a little underpowered. They scored 5.2 points per game. But for two of those games, they had John Nesser out there. And uh, how did this happen? 45-year-old playing two games. Uh, his younger brother, Ted, was the head coach. So that's how he, he got it. <laughs> So anyway, Jason Peters, he'll gonna, he's going to have to go till 2027, right? Or 2028 to beat uh, John Nesser's. Shame- it's, a, it's a record that's shameful. You don't encounter too many all-time records and you think that is shameful, but... That is, for oldest offensive lineman, leaning on your younger brother to get onto the Columbus Panhandles. 
I've always been a Panhandles fan, though, so I remember that game. I was there in the stadium. Um, it was an incredible performance. He really competed his butt off. The Columbus Panhandles were a problem. <laughs> they were. They they were an elite group. Um, well, it was a super fun game, man. It was. I think it, we learned a lot in this game. It was a fun game visually to watch with the new uniforms. It was fun to see Frank Clark out there. Um, to see the team continue to make strides. I think we saw, even though Woolen had some uh, some penalty issues, I think we saw the continual um, trajectory of what our cornerbacks can look like with Woolen and Spoon and Trey Brown. Um, Adams continues to do his thing. I mean, we haven't even talked about the 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 deflection off of the helmet. I mean, pretty crazy. Julian Love, you know, it, it, good to see. I think we're making progress. Maybe here's my final, final takeaway. I think we're making progress. I think that this was another stepping stone in the right direction for this team. That's that's my my main takeaway of the game. Absolutely. And here's uh, something we didn't mention is is really uh, a week after Miles Garrett was the Browns' main offensive force against the Colts, caused so many problems. He had the one sack. That was really the one play that he caused an issue for the Seahawks. Shout-outs to Charles Cross at left tackle and the rest of, of the offensive line. He was – I mean, that, it was a crucial sack at a big moment, but it's kind of like, hey, if that's all you're going to get out of Miles Garrett pretty much all day, that that's a tremendous day for the Seahawks' offensive line. Yeah, you'll take that. And then considering that it's Stone Forsyth and, and Jason Peters basically on the other side – and that Miles, I believe, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure Miles got that sack. I, I, I know he came at least from the left side. I don't know if he beat um, Charles Cross or not. I, I don't remember exactly. But I don't think that Stone or Jason Peters really got beat by him, which is pretty crazy. Um, I, I heard Brock mention on their show that there was a moment where um, <laughs> where where Jason Peters like hit Miles Garrett like three times in the face over and over again. And I just... There's something about that. that I just, I would love, I would love to listen to what's going on on a football field when someone as experienced as Jason Peters is out there. Like, again, I'll just go back to it. There's nothing you can show me I haven't seen before. And yeah, you're the greatest. You're one of the greatest in the league, but it it still doesn't impress me that much. Like you're not too big for the moment. It's just, I don't know. There's something about the dude that's been doing something for 20 years that kind of, yeah, and I'm not saying that makes makes him perfect, but it kind of just means that he kind of transcends the moment a little bit, you know. And I just love the idea of him just like walloping Miles Garrett on the face and just being like, "Yeah, I'm, I can get away with it. I know what I'm doing." That is one of the mysteries of football. This was a nationally televised game. We're watching this all on TV, and uh, I to- I totally missed that. I suspect most people did that too. How could he miss somebody hitting somebody in the face three times? There's there's a lot going on out there. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. Um, okay, we should wrap up next week. I believe we play the Crows. I think that's their name, the Crows. I think there's wait, wait is it the Edgar? Is it the Panhandles? No, I think it's the Edgar Allan Pose. I the think Edgar Allan Pose. Yeah. I think that's who we're facing, correct? The most literary team. Yeah, yeah. Get your library cards out. Um, what did the Ravens say? Nevermore. Nevermore. Nevermore 
better times than now for a great opportunity to compete our butts off against the Ravens. Any any thoughts? I mean, Lamar Jackson is Lamar Jackson. He's pretty great. Um, Zay, here's a fun matchup. Zay Flowers, right? So they have their young stud wide receiver who has kind of been a focal point of their offense, whereas JSN has kind of been our number three guy. So he hasn't gotten the same opportunities, but kind of fun. That's just kind of a fun, maybe national headline right there to young up and coming wide receivers. I'm, I'm really glad JSN is turning it on right now. So it kind of gives it a little bit more, you know, uh, uh, gumption. Yeah, a lot more juice now than like three or four weeks ago. This is going to be one of the few games all year where the Seahawks are big underdogs. They're going into Baltimore, 10 a.m. game. And uh, I guess this is where they could really start to prove the the type of team they are. Because if they do put everything together, as and you're, you're, you're wise to say that it could only happen a couple times a year. And it's like, hey, it could be Sunday. If everything comes together, I do think they beat the Ravens, but I do think they have an uphill battle in this one. I, I kind of, I kind of suspect this is, this is maybe the tier between the real Super Bowl contenders and then where the Hawks are right outside of it. But you know what? Leonard should be there, and I, I would not be surprised if they got the win at least. All the more reason why beating the Browns was a big deal, you know, because it, it, you're banking a victory. And when you bank a victory, now you're five and two. If you lose versus the Ravens, you know, which it's it's going to be a tough game. It, it will go down. I think both teams are going to compete their butts off. I think it'll come down to the final play. It's going to be a very tight game and it could go either way easily. Um, but, you know, y- you lose to the Browns, you're four and three, right? And then you lose to the Ravens and suddenly you're four and four. I mean, really, that happens fast versus you beat the Browns, you're five and two, you lose to the Ravens, you're five and three. Like it's not, and the gauntlet that they're going to, they're about to go on in these really, really good teams, you know, we're not going to win all of these games. We just won't. There's going to be some losses here over the next few weeks. Um, and so banking a win against the Browns, it, it makes it even more important. This Baltimore defense is ferocious. They are really, really good. Um, but the Browns defense is ferocious and they're really, really good, you know? And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, here we go. This is as, as uncle Pete will tell us, it, it ain't going to be easy and it ain't going to be pretty, you know? And so I think, uh, maybe here's, here's my going into it. No style points. We can win the ugliest game ever. If, if we win versus the Ravens and it is the ugliest game we've ever won. I will just be grinning like a Cheshire cat, which is uh, my daughter Darcy's Halloween costume tonight. I will be grinning from ear to ear if we can get the ugliest win in NFL history versus Lamar Jackson, a really solid offense um, and a really, really good defense. They they are a problem. I think, yes. And the Ravens are, and even though the Ravens don't have the star power of other defenses, they are as of today, first in the league in points allowed. They're only allowing 15 points per game, which, which is, is the best in the NFL. I do. I think you're completely right. No, Yeah, no style points. An ugly win is a great win. And even, I would still even be encouraged if it is a close loss down to the end, like you're saying. A game like that Bengals loss, which was a loss on the road, but a very 
close, tight loss that still showed the team's potential. I think I think that can still happen as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, hey, another fun week, another Seahawks victory. Um, do we now? We did not prepare this, folks. What I'm about to say. Do we want to try to give? And I'll put it on me first. A, a point. Do we want to try to predict next week what we think? What we think the game score is going to be. I will start to give you more time because I'm throwing this at you last minute. Okay. Now let me think about it for a second. Don't pressure me, Miles. I'm going to say Seahawks 20. 20 to 17. That's good. That's that's my prediction for the Ravens. I'm sorry, for, for the Hawks. Hawks winning, but 20, 20 to 17 Hawks. I'm going to go... Uh... Ravens 17, Hawks 12. But I want to see a safety out of that 12. I want touchdown, field goal, safety. Come on, make it an ugly one. I love it. I love it. All right, my friend. Hey, have a lovely rest of your week. And uh, until next time, go Hawks. Go Hawks.